Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Anjali Rangaswamy, a sixth grade student in San Francisco, and I'm pleased to introduce author and producer Lori David. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club's Food Lit series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. Do meals at your home sometimes feel like pit stops to shovel in protein? How many times a week does your family sit together for a meal? Is the TV on? Do people talk to each other? How many times does someone occasionally glance at a cell phone or video game? Do you know where the food on the table came from? Or how much carbon was released in producing and transporting it? Every evening, my mom gathers the whole family together for dinner. The rule is, nobody's allowed to start eating until everyone is present. My dad is Indian, so he likes to eat later on. He usually joins us with a glass of wine. We discuss school, politics, and what's going on in each of our lives. Sometimes we agree and sometimes we argue, but either way, it's a great way to connect. Lori David is here to discuss the American table with our live audience in San Francisco. Ms. David produced the Academy Award-winning documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, and her new book is The Family Dinner, Great Ways to Connect with Your Kids. Please join me in welcoming Lori David. I want to announce right now that she'll be going on tour with me. Thank you so much. Wow, great job. Thank you. I want to come see you in a few years. Thanks. I'm so grateful for everybody who came tonight. Thank you so much. And as she mentioned, some of you may know me as a global warming activist and the producer of An Inconvenient Truth. That's true. Or you may have heard my name rattling around this past abnormally hot summer as being Al Gore's special friend. Not true. But today, I want to talk about something that is totally different, but of immense promise. The emotional environment inside our homes. Now, a little over a year ago, I had a classic Oprah aha moment. While I was sitting at my kitchen table on an ordinary school night with my two teenage daughters. It was an epiphany that brought me a small but powerful sense of relief. 
Like many moms, I spend more than enough time beating myself, myself up over all the parenting mistakes, big and little, I've made and will doubtful, undoubtedly make in the future. But this particular evening, I realized I had actually done something right as a parent. That is, to insist for the past decade that my family participate in the ritual of family dinner. And as I sat there, dessert long since eaten, both girls still chatting away, I was awash in the glow of all the gifts the many weekday meals have brought us over the years. Now that my kids are 14 and 16, and everything is getting tougher, everything, this ritual has helped keep them at the table talking to me. And some days, that is really all you can hope for. I can even thank Family Dinner for helping us get through the pain of divorce and reconnecting me with my ex back around that very same table. I started doing Family Dinner to create more cozy moments for my children and myself. But the truth is, the benefits reach far beyond our table. It's not a coincidence that as the practice of family dinner has shriveled and shrunk over the last 30 years, there has been an explosion of threatening new health problems that were all but foreign to our grandparents. In their day, family dinner was a non-negotiable. I mean, you practically had to have a doctor's note to miss it. Today, the pressures of modern life are endangering family dinner and turning it into something valueless, mechanical and disposable, like our paper napkins and plastic forks. The challenges creating this threat are uniquely ours, very 21st century, and have all had a hand in America's decline in dining habits, and they include the influx of more women into the workforce, long commutes, the scheduling of after-school activities during dinner time, and the nonstop shiny intrusion of the screen. Computers, cell phones, video games, television, name your poison. Into that mix, I would also throw the seemingly innocent appliance sitting in all our kitchens, the magic little box we call a microwave. This invention and the trillion-dollar, one-minute processed food industry it spawned has accelerated our problems by promoting a cheap, artificial, antisocial, health-depleting culture of eat fast and eat alone. Today, most meals last less than 20 minutes. 25% of family dinners are eaten on a couch, and many more are gobbled down in the car after work or on the way to soccer practice. All these changes in our culture have turned what was once a shared family activity into an inconvenient and often solitary exercise. Dinner is just a time to refuel, like having to fill your gas tank. The price we are paying is enormous, and we are trashing time-honored traditions and mindlessly tossing away so much of what is rich from our daily rituals. A growing body of scientific research shows us that not only do family meals provide much-needed nutrition, but they are also one of the key places children develop self-esteem, resiliency, patience, listening skills, vocabulary, and empathy. And the price we are paying health-wise, well, that is off the charts. 
Today, 35% of what we eat every day is fast food. We've doubled our spending on buying food away from the home, and food that's almost always higher in fat, salt, and sugar. Our obsession with sugary drinks has also doubled in the last three decades. About 10% of the calories our kids consume every day, the building blocks of their brain, bones, liver, and heart come from soda. And our appetite for meat has become gargantuan and absolutely unsustainable. And what was once a weekly treat is now often inhaled at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I mean, it's impossible to respect what you are eating when you are eating so much of it. Most of us in this room consume 150 times more chicken than our grandparents did. And 99% of our meat and dairy comes directly to us from filthy factory farms that are devastating our air and water and where animals are force-fed food that is unnatural to their systems, pumped with hormones and antibiotics to make them get bigger faster so they can be slaughtered quicker and sold to us to keep up with the growing demand. That is what we are eating and feeding our kids. Animal products are the main source of saturated fats, which contribute to a whole host of diseases. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that diet-related illnesses is now America's top killer. We are in the midst of a tsunami of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, allergies. Yale University scientists recently reported that childhood obesity has tripled over the past 30 years. So today, over half of all American kids are now officially classified as overweight. And overweight people have more heart disease, cancer, and are three times more prone to suffer from diabetes. A 2009 Gallup study found diabetes hits one in nine Americans. But that number will soon be outdated. The CDC just released figures warning that by mid-century, that figure would go to one in three. One in three. So that's like, look to your right and to your left. One of the three of you will have diabetes. I mean, that is a huge percentage of our population with a serious, chronic, and expensive disease. And of course, closely linked to the threat of obesity is the specter of digital overload. Now, there isn't a parent I know who doesn't love the access afforded us by technology, but who also doesn't fear its overall impact on our kids. Some of us are already at the breaking point. Anybody else? Okay, that's, we just did a show of hands. A recent Kaiser Family Foundation study showed that on average, kids age 8 to 18 are plugged into some kind of screen, are you ready for this figure, for seven and a half hours a day. And tweens, kids 11 to 14, are clocking in an off-the-chart screen time of 12 hours a day. And neither of those figures includes texting. So we have to ask ourselves, where is all this time coming from? Well, it's time that was once spent bike riding, playing outside, bonding with your family. Instead, 21st century kids are spending half their waking hours building relationships with their TVs, computers, phones, and video players. Two-thirds of the kids in the Kaiser study say their family watches TV during meals. And this is a big one, because TV during dinner is a thief. 
that robs families of one of their best opportunities to connect with their kids. And it's not only antisocial, it's enormously fattening, too. Kids unconsciously scarf down hundreds of extra calories when they mindlessly eat while watching TV. And what are they watching? Lots of ads for junk food. One study calculated that kids see almost 8,000 ads a year, 70% of which are for foods with the lowest nutritional value. So what is a parent to do? Okay, now to the really, really good news. While I'm not suggesting this will solve everything, there is one enormously valuable solution that is highly effective, dirt cheap, available to you every day, and emotionally fulfilling to boot, family dinner. This simple ritual was once treasured by everyone until we turned our back on it in the 1980s. Our grandparents knew it, and most of our parents too that frequent family dinner can help protect kids from everything a parent worries about, from drugs to alcohol to poor self-esteem, low school grades, and poor nutrition. In 2007, a Columbia University study found a strong link between family dinners and reduced drug use. Frequent shared meals rewarded families with a stunning six times reduction in pot use in 12 to 13-year-olds and cut to a quarter the number of kids who use tobacco and alcohol. And that's just the beginning. Teens with more than three family dinners a week were only half as likely to struggle in school, get into fights, think about suicide, and have sex. Wow. Okay, reducing those problems is not a bad return for some extra time sitting at the table with the ones you love. And contrary to what you might think, the teens loved it. 84% said they preferred family meals over dining solo. I mean, kids are really desperate for our attention, even if they say otherwise. And this begs the question, what about family dinners makes them so effective? Well, the very wise professors at Emory University have been studying this for years. And guess what? They figured out the answer. Children who function better are more resilient, know a lot more about their family histories. The number one place the history is passed from generation to generation, is the dinner table. And grandma tells the grandchildren stories about their moms and dads, you know, the family classics, the ones where everybody, like, rolls their eyes, oh, not that story again. Those stories are told and retold at dinner. Emory researchers believe that the reason the dinner is so powerful is because it provides the single best venue for transmitting and forming a family's story. And it's the knowledge of that story and the privileges and responsibilities that come with that knowledge that feed the kid's soul while the home-cooked food feeds their bodies. Stop family dinners, and the transmission is stopped or made very, very difficult. We should think of family dinner as the most important activity our kids and our family can do. It's a nightly dress rehearsal for adulthood, a safe, dependable place to practice cooperation, patience, and manners, kindness, and gratitude, and share stories. Family dinner offers a sanctuary of stability and confidence in a world filled with disruptions and doubt. It's an antidote to the isolation and superficiality of the world we all move through today. 
and as, as a super great bonus, the shared family dinner will feed us with the love, attention, and connection we crave and are as fundamental to our health and well-being as the nutrients we consume. It's also such great luck that the kitchen is the best room in the house to practice and teach green values. How and what we eat, what we buy, what we waste are all part of what defines us as a generation. And the simple green steps of reducing the amount of meat we consume, buying food locally and in season, even growing a little bit ourselves, all directly impact our health and the health of the planet. So the bottom line is, as nutritionist Miriam Weinstein says, if we want our kids to lead healthier lives, we need to eat with them more often. Family dinner can help tremendously with the three of the biggest problems we face today, our national health crisis, our difficulty connecting with each other through the fog of technology, and our urgent need to take better care of our environment. Family dinner is the place to civilize our children, pass on family history, and eat fresh home-cooked food. It was at the core of America's value system in previous generations. And it's at the core of the new food revolution we are at the start of now. And this isn't about adding more shoulds to your life or feeling guilty about what you have or haven't done. This doesn't require hours of preparation or an apple pie in the oven. It doesn't even have to happen at night. If you can't do dinner, then make your ritual breakfast or nighttime tea time or Sunday brunch. Do it with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or soup and a salad. This is about recapturing the superbly simple practice of sitting down and eating dinner together as a family. Things are disappearing that we should really be holding on to for dear life. We need these rituals to help us breathe and eat and remember the past and talk about the future. With family dinners, the question could be put this way. Do we sit down together so we can have dinner? Or do we have dinner so we can sit down together? Either way we look at it, that is where the true nourishment happens. Thank you. Our guest today at Climate One of the Commonwealth Club is Lori David, author of The Family Dinner. Welcome. Thank you. And I love this. How great that you're using this instead of plastic water bottles. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, we use... Do I get to take this home? Absolutely. Please do. Okay, good. We use compostables, et cetera, et cetera. Excellent. So uh, I'd like to start by asking you what family dinner was like in your house growing up. Okay. You want to know? I want to know. Okay. Well, you know, it's interesting because... First of all, you can ask anybody this question, and you're going to be, you know, you're going to get so many different answers, and people, their faces, people are going to get all emotional, and I mean, that just goes to the power of the dinner. For me, growing up, um, I remember, well, we had dinner every night, and it was home-cooked, but it was always about who was going to leave the table first crying, and it was really, there was, it's true, at my table, there was just a lot of of tension, and um, for me... I, was, oh, I just always remember thinking, okay, how fast can I leave this table and get back out on my bicycle on the street? Mm-hmm. And so as a parent, I wanted to make sure that I didn't repeat that history. And I think that's one of the reasons why I put so much focus on the dinner time. And so when did you start so the, these rituals and this kind of awareness about the importance of, of uh, table and family, right. a family dinner with your own children? Well, you know what? 
here's, here's the truth, again. <laughs> the truth is that I didn't know any of the research, all the things I just talked about. I learned as I was um, working on the book, The Family Dinner. Um, I started doing this because I was desperate with two little kids in the house and a husband who works seven days a week for some happy, cozy family moments that I wasn't having. I mean, I found parenting incredibly difficult. And I was like, well, this is going to be a really long road here if I can't, you know, figure out a way to create some good times. And, you know, dinner just seemed like the perfect opportunity to do it. We all had to eat. And um, that's what I put my energies to. And also, you know, the epiphany I had at, that, at the dinner table a year ago, now that my kids are teenagers, and really, you know, everything you hear about how hard that's going to be is true, that I'm, I'm just so grateful that I did this when they were young. Foundation, because the, yeah. Put the foundation there because, you know, it's not, it's not an argument. I mean, they come to the table because that's what we've always done. And um, as your kids get older, you, you know, there's, there's less and less opportunity to connect with them. I mean, they really, you know, aren't that interested in spending that much time with you. But they don't question the time that they spend with me at dinner because they know that that's something that, that we do as a family. So I'm, I'm very grateful for it. And, you know, one of the reasons why I wrote this book, along with Kirstein, who is here today, who did all our recipes. Kirstein, where are you? Kirstein, there she is. Yay, Kirstein. Yeah, thank you. We're going to ask her some questions about food later. But um, was that I, I realized that I had, um, over the course of a lot of years, come up with, with tons of fantastic ways to get everyone to the table and keep them there. And my goal is to share these ideas with everybody so that this, so having dinner will be easier for them and that the, the, the time at the table will be fun. And that's my goal. So one of your rules is uh, one meal, no substitutions. Right. And I know that was this something that you did all along? Because once you start some patterns, I'm thinking about my house, where mm-hmm. we have some carbo hounds who will only eat pasta and then mom and dad eat something else. And once you kind of go down that road with right. different people eating different things, it's hard to get back to that beauty well, that, that you're advocating. I think it's a good question. Like what came first, the chicken or the egg, the picky eater or the parents who are allowing the picky eater? I don't know. Some kids have honest-to-goodness food issues. Right. And I'm, you know, they do. But for me, what I noticed with my family, and again, this book is all about my personal experience. So I'm really just, I'm I'm just talking about what I did, what I learned. Um, For me, it was about this philosophy of don't cook for the kids, cook for the family. And that means maybe including things that everybody's going to like. But if you're cooking for the family, your kids are going to, you know, they're part of the family. They're going to learn to enjoy it. Also, it takes kids you know, somewhere between 10 and, and 15 times of tasting something to actually develop a, a, a palate for it. So if you immediately say, oh, my kids don't eat that, and then, you know, don't keep, stop um, presenting it, they're never going to develop a taste for it. And I can't tell you how many times I've had little kids at my table who've said, oh, I hate tomato soup, but wait, we just, this is homemade, you're really going to like, you know, and, and finally they taste it, and then, of course, it becomes their favorite food. So you have, to, um, you have to be consistent, you have to make food for your family, and your kids will come. And if they don't eat it, there's no snacks later, that's the way it is? This that, is you got to be, you know, you got you to gotta decide what, what are the things you're going to put your foot down on. Yeah, I think that's that one. that's one of them. And, of course, the other one, I think, is no technology at the table. And that has got to be, you know, I've been doing a, a lot of interviews for this book, and a lot of people are saying to me, well, how do you keep them from having the phones at the, t- the cell phones at the table? It's like, here's how you, it's a rule. It's like you cannot bring your phones to the table. And you have to just, you know, we have to 
be in charge. You have to say, okay, this is where I'm drawing the line. And I think, you know, what I really feel for what parents are going through. And, um, you know, my kids started with the technology like somewhere around sixth grade. But this whole next um, generation is going to be dealing with technology with kids starting at second grade. And it's really an insidious thing. And you have to, at some point, everybody has to stop. We have to look each other in the eye. Look, I just spent all this time making this food. I want a little Cavell moment. I want, I want some appreciation. I want to have fun at the meal, right? So, you know, demand it. <laughs> I was at a restaurant the other day, and a parent was having a conversation with another adult, holding his iPhone like this so the daughter next door could watch a video, which was just, you know, buying him some peace and quiet so that he could have an adult conversation. You understand right. where this comes from, right? Yes, but of I, course, but the parents are addicted, too, and, you know, so am I. We all are. That's why it's so... I mean, you know, there's... You could say people who use the um, video stuff on, in cars, too. Like, is it, what is that teaching kids that not to, you know, uh, entertain themselves, not to look out the window? What are they missing by not looking out the window? So, listen, this problem is not going away. This problem is going to get worse and worse and worse, and... Um, you know, we need some antidotes to it. But you do advocate games at the dinner table, non-technological games, right? right? And I thought that was some of the most interesting parts of the book about how people uh, come up with stories or questions, what, what, what one good thing about me or what's thing, one thing I right. like about you. Right, or, right. Uh, so let's talk about, you know, well, engaging I, activities at the table. It's my philosophy that the conversation is just as important as the food. So... That's the reason why we're all sitting together, is to talk to each other. So I, you know, again, I couldn't leave this up to, you know, just to have, it, w- it wasn't just going to happen in my house. Um, I realized that I, you have to create the memories, right? You have to create yeah. the opportunities. So I started coming up with all these games, verbal games, and simple things. Like, you know, and here's something everybody can try tonight. Because what you want to avoid is, how is your day fine? Like, uh, you know, we, none school, of us, man. nobody needs to hear that again, right? So what we want to have happen is to throw something at the table, get everybody relaxed and laughing, and take the con- it'll take the conversation in new ways. I mean, you will hear some su- great happy and surprising things from your kids if you play some of the games in this book. One of the ones that is a, a big favorite uh, in my family is this game we call um, Name Your Pet Peeve or Idiosyncrasy. So here's a little learning moment, too. You get to explain what a pet peeve is and how it's different from an idiosyncrasy, and then you go around the table, and you'll, you'll be amazed at what your kids come up with. And then if you're you know, kind of a strong family, you can have each other name each other's idiosyncrasies. <laughs> but don't get offended if you play it that way. So, you know, the conversation is just as important as the food. But this sounds like something that you did after your separation, because I'm trying to imagine dinner with Larry David. You don't need stories. You have built-in comedy entertainment right there. You know what? You would think so. (laughs) But I have to, you know, since we're being honest here, I have to say, Larry was not great at the table, and I spent many nights kicking him in the shin, saying, participate, participate. You know, he grew up, his role models were a family that, you know, food is to refuel. And they didn't have a fun and joyous table. And so he didn't um, know how to do that. His mind was somewhere else, maybe. Yeah, and his mind would be somewhere else. And he just didn't, he didn't understand that this is like our chance to teach and learn and share. He didn't understand it. He's learned it since. And I have to say, he's become a fantastic dinner guest. And um, that's because the great news with family dinner is the more you do it, the better you get at it, right? So uh, he's gotten very good at it. 
Let's talk about cooking with kids. That's also something that can be fun that you advocate. I know I've certainly done that and find that cooking can kind of calm people down and get us focused on a hands-on project that everyone can enjoy. Uh, but not often. People don't cook that much with kids these okay, days. Okay, but it's so much fun. And if you do simple things with them, because it does, I think a lot of people don't cook with their kids because it takes more time. And it's messy. And it's messy. But here's, here's, we have tons of tips about this in the book. And we also have on a lot of the recipes, we have a little box that says kids can. So it's two or three suggestions of some easy things your kids can do for that recipe to help you. But the great thing that happens when kids cook is that they take ownership of the meal. And guess what that means? That means they're going to eat more. You know, I've had my, my kids do one or two things to help with dinner. They sit down and they're announcing to everyone, I'm, they made dinner. So to them, they did make dinner, right? Yeah, they did two yeah. things, but they made dinner. So that's, the, that's great. You want that ownership, and you want kids helping in the kitchen. And of course, you want everybody helping clean up, too. We, uh, and as part of my homework for this program, we cooked some banana bread at our house and took it to the neighbors and one of our neighbors. And our kids were so proud to take this loaf of banana bread that, the, yeah, that they had ownership right. and that they cooked. And it's right. something that I hope we'll do. You know, kind of honestly did it kind of like, I got, can't come up here. I've got to have some story to tell to do a little <laughs> well, start homework cooking for this. Well, yeah. start cooking some of the recipes in this book because you'll have great stories to tell afterwards. And you'll be able to tell about all the foods your kids ate that you thought they'd never eat. Because the truth is it's not about food being, you know, quote, healthy or that it's, you know, a lot of vegetables. It's that the food's delicious. So if the food's delicious, and I have Kirstein to thank for that, she came up with all the recipes. Um, If the food's delicious, everybody's going to eat it. But I have one other thing I want to say about this, which is um, a a concept in the book, which I think works fantastic, and that is this idea of participation food. So here's how it works. You make something where just the little finishing touches of it can be finished at the table, right? Because then all of a sudden you sit down and everyone's doing it themselves and and then you get to go around the table and everybody names your dish. So we do this with soup a lot. And you can do this. We have a Vietnamese soup in in the book that this is a a perfect example of. But you can do this with chicken noodle soup. You can make your soup and you can separate all the ingredients. You can take the shredded chicken out and put it in a bowl. You can put the noodles in another bowl. You can have chopped up fresh cabbage. You could have chopped chopped up carrots fresh. A lot of this you can prepare in advance, right? And you put it all in the center of the table, and then everybody starts putting it into their bowls, and then you put the broth in one of your family heirlooms, and I'll tell you why that's important too, right? In a teapot, and you go around, you fill everyone's bowl with the broth. Okay, all of a sudden, this is like a fantastic night. This is a memorable dinner, and it's only Tuesday. So those kinds of ideas are all in the book, and those are the things I'm really excited about. The heirloom's important because, like I said in, the, um, mm-hmm. in my talk, like we have to start sharing family stories again. I mean, this is really something that we're in danger of losing. And so put something on the table that will get everybody talking. Where, where did Grandma's teapot come from, and why was it important to her? And, and yeah. start telling these stories. And, of course, invite your relatives over, too. You mentioned seasonal and, and local food, which is easy for us to say in San Francisco right. and California. It's not so easy in the middle of the country. And some of this uh, reeks of you know, uh, elitism. So like it's easy for us on the left or, left or right coast to talk about these things. What about people who can't get seasonal food uh, or have a single working parent? It's, some of this stuff is harder for some people than it is. Right. You know, in, right. In, no, that's true. And I think, I think you know, 
when our grandparents' time, people used to grow their own food. A lot of people, you know, Victory Gardens, we have a little sidebar about that in the book. People used to grow their own food in the backyard, and then you knew, you know, you knew what was on it and what it, what it was and where it came from. But it is a challenge, and I think that, um, you know, this concept of food deserts, too, that's not even, that's not something that I, I had, had knew about before. I mean, we've got, you know, access to healthy, fresh food is a, is a big problem in this country and something we have to work on. Food was barely mentioned in an inconvenient truth for the award-winning, mm-hmm. Academy Award-winning film that you produced. Um, and it seems that food seems to be much more on the forefront of consciousness these days. I mean, some places have always been full of foodies like San Francisco. Right. But in terms right. of the environmental awareness and movement, food seems to be rising up in terms of right. uh, an issue. So is that something you've seen? I mean, why wasn't food part of the movie? Was it just not part of... Well, there was so much to talk about, you know, something had to give because, you know, you have to edit these things and people have right. to, you know, food. So, But it, now people talk about cutting your meat consumption is probably right. the biggest thing you can do to reduce your carbon footprint. Well, for, we have to. Honestly, just, just if, if you don't care about the environment, you just care about your health, we have to start eating less meat. We have to. And it's completely unsustainable. So we, we're eating too much of it. So we, we have to do that. You know, food miles, how far this food's traveling. The fact that everything's available all year long. Like, that is crazy. Yeah. I mean, how... How exciting yeah. is it when you, when you get to taste the first strawberry in June? And how delicious does that taste? I mean, we're, you know, we're undermining that, that experience by having this available all year long. I mean, we, do, we really don't understand what fresh tastes like anymore because we're not really eating fresh food. So that's a big challenge. But I think the reason why food is, is becoming more popular, and I think the issues of food, every single thing that we all care about crosses the dinner plate. I mean, this is the perfect place where all these issues come together. And the kitchen is the greenest room in your house to start, you know, practicing and teaching these values. And, uh, you know, food waste is another issue. What we're throwing away is insane. How about how much plastic, you know, we're using in the kitchen? And, and, And the fact that we're all drinking from plastic water bottles and not from glass and not from the tap. And, and in your kitchen, you know, kids, kids are grabbing like water bottles. And, you know, there's a lot of issues relating not just, not just the fact that every piece of plastic that ever existed that was ever that was ever made think of every piece of saran wrap that ever went on a bowl still exists right so we need to um you know a lot of this is about we need to go backwards in order to go forward right we need to we need to go back to some simpler times and we need to um in order to 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 move ahead because it is it is unsustainable the way we're living it really is so sustainability, it sounds great to, to buy organic, but a lot of organic costs more, again, and some people aren't willing to... Yeah, but so then them. you pick the things that are the most important, and there's a whole list, and we have a list in the book of the, okay, if you can only afford, you know, five organic vegetables or fruits, buy these. But I would also argue that if people ate less meat, they can use that extra money to buy a better quality of meat, right? So mm-hmm. um, if you cook at home... That's a lot cheaper than buying takeout and eating in restaurants all the time. So I think there's ways to, you know, shuffle things a little bit to get the, the benefits from it. Lori David is our guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, and she's the author of The Family Dinner. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, we have a culture, though, of people who love to watch the Food Channel uh-huh. but don't love to cook. Isn't that crazy that they're watching more and more food? I mean, they love watching it, the, the channel, but they're not cooking more. Why is that? Because we're a 
voyeuristic society. I don't know. Yeah, I mean. I mean, it's not even that you could. You can't even smell the smell. So I'm not sure why that's not. But that guy with the spiky hair who uh, does the divers and di- drivers and divins. Uh-huh. Oh and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Drivers yeah. and diners. I mean, he's hugely popular. Right. And right. when he goes to a restaurant, then all of a sudden the restaurants get hugely popular. And yet, you know, what you're advocating is very simple, but there's some very powerful forces going the other direction right. in media saturated culture. Well, fast food, the microwave, all those things. You know, we are we are we're not buying less of it; we're buying more of it. But that guy, well, what's his name? Um, ass, ass, guy, 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 Fieri. Fieri. Guy Fieri. Guy Fieri. Yeah. Okay, I watched an episode of that the other day while I was on an exercise bike. And I, I swear to God, I was ready to get on a plane and go to Minnesota. Because that restaurant he was at, with yeah, that, yeah. With, but again, a lot of those restaurants are family-owned and family cooking and family secrets. I, I was ready to get on a plane and go to that restaurant just to eat the, eat the food there. I mean, it looks so fantastic. Yeah, his enthusiasm <laughs> is, is, is infectious. Um, let's talk about meat, meat a little bit. You mentioned Jonathan Foyer at, at the end of your book, mm-hmm. who wrote a book, Eating Animals, um, which, you know, do you eat a lot of meat at, at your dinner table? Are you vegetarian? Are your kids vegetarian? Okay, I am a meat reducer, okay? And I, I honestly, I really hate labels because I think they, you know, they put this pressure on you and it's, I, you know, you don't have to put a label on yourself. You just have to, you know, find healthier ways to live. And um, so I consider myself a meat reducer. And my kids eat, I mean, we, we actually, we have a chapter about Meatless Monday, but in my house, it's basically Meatless Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So I do eat meat, but I eat it, you know, not that much. And when I have it, I enjoy it. Less and than I, you used to? 85% less than I used to. And um, I try to buy, you know, organic meat and grass-fed meat when I can. But um, it's a very simple way to, you know, to reduce your carbon footprint and, and, um, Help your health, too, is eat less of it. Let's, uh, Lori David is the uh, author of The Family Dinner Table and the producer of An Inconvenient Truth. Uh, let's have some folks, we're going to put some microphones out in the audience, invite you to come up to that, and we're going to especially encourage, uh, we're so delighted to have some young people in the audience. So uh, I, I have questions for them. Okay, well, I'd like to ask them some questions. So let's, uh, <laughs> don't be shy. After this, gentlemen, we'll invite some people to, uh, to come up and, and ask a question, and there's no... Ro- no wrong question or answer. And, and uh, yes, sir. Hi, uh, my name's Mike Lanza. And uh, first, I want to point out that I missed my family meal with my wife and three little boys to come here tonight. I know. And, it's, a, uh, it's a big, big dilemma. It is. It actually <laughs> is. And, and I would go to more Commonwealth Club events if they didn't happen during our family dinner time. Okay. Well, that's we. Yeah. There we, yeah. <laughs> well noted. Good point. Thank you. Well yep. noted. Um, but I, I was, uh, as a question, I was uh, going to uh, ask uh, in. In uh, Sicily, where I have many cousins, um, you cannot get anything done between 12 noon and 3 p.m. Everybody comes home. They come home from workplace. They come home for lunch from from, uh, school. Mm -hmm. And everybody has a family meal, even... Professionals even could take a nap. Uh, even even here in Stanford University, my alma mater, uh, twelve to one, twelve noon to right. one p.m. Nothing gets done. That is a time. Are you advocating when, a siesta here in, in America, Mike? Well, I'm wondering um, what you think about possibly getting institutions to carve out a chunk of time in the evening when they don't have. Uh, activities, when they right. don't have uh, classes well, or, or workplaces to say, hey, yeah. let's get people out of here at 6 p.m. Right. or 7 p.m. How do we do that? I think right. it's a great point, but what I would do is I would start with the schools because, you know, in the old days, kids, all the after-school activities were over at 5.30, and everybody got on the buses and came home. And today, 
these activities are, first of all, all across all around town. Not all of them are at school. Yeah. And they're scheduled during dinner time. And I think that's crazy. But I think it's parents who are going to have to say, you know what, the best activity my kid can do is be home for dinner. So I'm hoping that that will happen. And maybe the book will, will help inspire that. Thank you. Next question. Who's our first young, brave question? Uh, I see some, several of them who are dying to... Uh, we'll, we'll drop the microphone, too. So... I don't want to. I know right, it's too much pressure. Yeah. It's too much pressure. I know some of you by name, so I'll start calling names like they do in Boston. <laughs> Wait a second. Are so your kids? Your kids are here. My kids are. Yeah, they they, they just dove down under the seat over there. Uh, I know. This is corner. just. It's totally mortifying. You can't. We can't do it to them. And the okay. Um, any other adult questions? I've answered everybody's questions. It's fantastic. There we go. Over there. Why don't you come over? Yeah, the microphone's right over there, sir. Thank you. Um, and if anyone else Take would like time. to be after him, you can start lining up over there. Um, Claire, you going to go over there? Okay. We, we have two daughters, and both of them are of childbearing age. One of them is pregnant. Neither one of these women cook. They have all go, been going out. I don't know what the hell they do for meals, but they don't cook. People 30... 35 years old. Mm-hmm. So now they're going to be mothers. What in the hell are they going to do? They're clueless. Guess what? They're going to start cooking. They're, go- they're, go- they're going to start doing it. But, you know, the microwave is a big part of this problem, that, that we're so used to this fast, convenient, we don't have to cook because it's already made. All these individual meals, you know, the, this, this industry, this um, processed food industry, that, that's what it's done to people. And, um, you know, it's also a little bit about the shift in priorities. And um, you know what? You have to buy this book for both of those girls, okay? (laughs) All right. Easy recipes. Challenge them for a family dinner once a week where you guys are going to show up to. And and let's get them cooking, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Let's start here. Yes, please. Hi. Um, I have a um, uh, 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. And we have had family dinner three or four times a week since they were babies. Um, and still, to this day, my 12-year-old son, every night when we're having family dinner, he goes, oh, no, are we having family dinner again? And so he won't participate. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll sit there, and he's just, I, it's, it's really hard to engage him. Right. And okay, so he's been doing it his whole life. So you're, you're going to try some of the games in this book, some of these conversation games. Now, I have a 16-year-old, and... She's, you know, she's cynical, okay? And, you know, I'm sure probably more cynical than your son, okay, who's 14. And they, they, do, they do get this attitude like, oh, God, and they're rolling their eyes and all that. And I, I'm telling you, once we start playing these, these verbal word games at the table, you know, within a couple of minutes, she's forgotten herself that she's supposed to be, have an attitude, and she's playing the games, too. And that's what will happen. And I think maybe you just need to tweak the conversation to, to take it away from the, okay, we're a family now, and now we're having fun, right? We're having dinner together. And start talking about other things. And um, I, I bet you anything he'll, he'll participate. And the other thing, too, this happens a lot where kids say, I'm not hungry, and so they don't come down to dinner. Forget it. That is not a reason. For, I don't care if you're not hungry. Come, you have to come anyway. And nine times out of ten, 
my daughter who says she's not hungry ends up eating everything with us. They just don't want to stop what they're doing. They don't want to, you know, they, they're, they're in that, that mode. And so make them come to the table anyway. Do you control eating outside of mealtimes, before, afterwards? Because if they can graze outside mealtime, why come to face right. you at the dinner table? Well, this is a big tip. You know, I, in the book, I have advice from, you know, much wiser people than me, uh, parenting experts and nutritionists, and their advice is, is sprinkled throughout this entire book. And, and one of the things that they do advise is, and particularly when you have young kids, when your kids get older, you can't control too much. But um, with young kids, you, you know, the snack time should be conscious, it should be planned, it should be healthy, and it should get, you, it should get the kids from um, after school to dinner. Because the, the key thing that you want at dinner is for everyone to be hungry. And if everybody's grazing and eating too much, then... Mm. And that's a, that is a 21st century thing, by the way. All this eating, the eating, like, you know, all day long, eating, you know, at meetings, eating in the car, eating, you know... I, I've been guilty of that myself. I found that I realized one day I had, like, a bag of almonds and, and um, you know, dried peaches. It was all in my thing in the car, and I was eating all the time. I was driving. I was like, what am I doing? So I stopped doing that. But that that's a, that's a very... Uh, current cultural thing that we're eating all the time. So definitely planned snacks are really important, and um, the idea is to get everybody to dinner hungry. Yes, please. Hi. Hi. I'm really enjoying what you're saying tonight, and I really liked your discussion about helping children develop their palates. It's something I really believe in, and we have a lot of family dinners together. We don't often go out to eat, but when we do, one thing that we really have worked on over the years is never to order from the children's menu. Ah. It's just Can I hug you? I love you. <laughs> no, so, that is so important. Exactly. Forget these kids' meals. You know, if it says kids' meals, that means don't order it. They are unbelievably unhealthy. They're, they're, you know, it's basic. Here's a kids' meal: a soda, a hot dog, and French fries. That's a kids' meal, or the chicken fingers. And I, and I hope everyone's seen that Jamie Oliver segment about the chicken finger, chicken, finger, chicken yeah. nuggets. And we have this great recipe in the book called. We we have a fancy name for it. It's chicken schnitzel, but it's really a chicken nugget. But you make it yourself, so it's you know exactly what's in it. And uh, the kids' meals are one of, you know, that's something that it's going to be interesting over the course of the next few years to see how that shifts, whether or not, you know, the lid is, is off on kids' meals. They're awful. Order from the main menu. Order, you know, have your kids t- share your, you don't even need to order for them. There's, always the, there's so much food that comes usually in restaurants. Share what you're getting. Exactly, and we Great. always say, try something you've never tried, and right. something that we don't make at home, and that's how they learn. That's how they exactly. That's a great point. Great. Thank you for bringing it up. Hi, Lori Betsy Rosenberg, Green Hi, Radio Betsy. host, fellow climate activist. Yes, as a how mother, are you? Great to hear all this. As a mother of a 16-year-old, almost in two weeks, I agree with everything you're saying. Thank we you. also need to stop texting and looking at our phones while we're driving when they're about to get their license. I've been very conscious of that. Okay, I feel sorry. This is something I really feel. I'm going through this. When your kid first starts driving, oh my. Forget it. It's horrible. It is. You wouldn't wish that on your worst enemy. Luckily, she's not in too big a hurry. But here's what dinner does for that problem, okay? At least this is what I've done. Every article you ever see about, you know, someone getting into an accident, texting, and all the... I bring the article to the table. We read the article at the table. So, you know, if you didn't have that opportunity at dinner, you wouldn't be getting those, you know, those stories read to them. Right. So I've got three young women behind me, so I'm not going to make this long, but I have to ask you, after this election, with all the glaciers melting and oil gushing and fires raging and floods of epic proportion, you know, record heat waves everywhere, to get these tea partiers in office, um, most of whom are climate deniers, uh, do you think we ought to start a green tea party? 
that will really say, we're angry that the environment has been put on the back burner well, and climate ha- change is off the stove right now while we're yeah. broiling here. Well, uh, first of all, you know, half of everything is branding in that title, Green Tea Party. That's genius, right? You so you already have a great, we already have a great name. It's and healthy. Exactly. I don't, you know, personally, I don't believe, um, I think this word denier is, is sort of a, a fake word because I don't think it's really about denying. I think it's, you know, a conscious effort on self-interest on the, the few industries that don't want to see change, and they're spending a fortune of money to you know, confuse the public and misinform people, and this has been well documented. It was in An Inconvenient Truth. It's, there's been many articles about it. So I don't, I don't even think that people, you know, that they're denying it. I think they're consciously trying to uh, misinform us, and they're doing, unfortunately, a very good job of it. And that's even worse, isn't it? Right. So anyway, thinking Thank about you, starting Betsy. one. Thank you. Hi, girls. Okay, how old are you? Well, we know you're 12, right? We're all 11. Oh, you're 11? Yeah. Okay. Who's going to speak? Okay, so now that we're getting older, we have, like, a growing homework load and more activities. So how do we balance that out? I mean, like, we're all still having family dinners together, Mm -hmm. but, um, like, there's there's being less and less time as right. we go along. Right. Well, I think you have to, it doesn't matter how much you have to do, you have to stop for dinner. Because what it's going to do, it's going to give you energy, it's going to make you feel better, it's going to give you a break. I mean, you just can't keep like going, 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 going. You have to take your break, right? You have to like, it's like taking a nap or getting your rest. Dinner, dinner does that for you. So I think it doesn't matter how much work you have to do, you have to, have to take that break, okay? Okay. So don't give up your dinners. Give up an activity before you give up an after-school activity or before you give up your family dinner, okay? Promise. <laughs> <laughs> Was that a promise? Promise. Yeah, you do. One of Any, you, uh, another one of you have a question? Yeah. Okay, okay it's your turn. Um, so, um, like, does lunch time, like, and, like, socializing with other people, can that, like, count as... Family dinner? <laughs> no, 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 not family. Social dinner, yeah. Well, well, lunch is really important. Do you guys... Um, social, do you sit at a table? Do you, yeah. do you bring yeah. your own lunch or do you buy no, lunch? No, we there? bring our own lunch. You, and is it a waste-free lunch? Yeah, we, so, well, yeah. Well, yeah, okay. we don't have a cafeteria at our Okay, so all the stuff that you um, pack your lunch in, you bring back home, mm-hmm. right? We have, like, compost, trash, and recycling. Hey, Anjali, you got to speak into the mic. You have compost. We have compost, trash, and recycling on, like, all the floors and in all the rooms, so... Fantastic. You know, there's a lot of recipes in this book that make great leftovers for the lunchbox. So make sure your, your moms and dads start cooking some of these food, foods. But yeah, lunch counts. I mean, breakfast counts too, as long as everybody's talking to each other. I think it's the talking that's the, the key here, is that, you know, having conversation. Are you, do you girls each have your own phone? No. No, we don't have phones. You don't? Fantastic. Okay, well, go home and thank your moms and dads for that, okay? Also, so I'm vegetarian, so, like, are there, like, vegetarian recipes? Oh, my God, that's fantastic vegetarian recipes. But also, I think I don't like that word vegetarian because that makes it sound like it's missing something or that it's some kind of special weird food. It's just delicious food that features vegetables. Yes, tons of them. And you try, have, have your family and help them cook 
Grains, greens, and cheese, please. That's one of my favorite in there. Everybody always says, don't you like all the veggies? I'm like, not all of them. So they, like, they, they always think I, I like, that I like all vegetables and don't really like much else. Well, nobody likes all of anything, so that's okay. That's great that you're, why, why are you a vegetarian? Um, well, I was just raised that way. My dad, he's from India, and so mm -hmm. he, he's vegetarian, and so that's how I was raised. Wonderful. So you get your protein from? Um, tofu, beans, beans. I really lentils. like tofu. Lentils, yeah. My mom right. likes lentil soup like once a week. Fantastic. Well, she should try our lentil soup recipe, see if it's any different. <laughs> also, but, yeah. what if like a parent cooks like some, like you kind of explain this, but like what if it's like something you don't like, like but like... <laughs> But, like, they're making you eat it? Like, that's not really, like, a family dinner. Authoritarian family dinner, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, I, you know, this is a, I think that's a very good question. And, you know, in the old days, the adage was, you know, eat everything on your plate. And I think we've learned that that doesn't work. So, in fact, my sister Lisa is here. And she, she did not like peas. And we spent, you know, for some reason my mother made peas all the time. We spent a lot of time at that dinner table figuring out ways to hide the peas, right? <laughs> I mean, to this day, she still cannot have a pea on her plate. So I, I think those, those kinds of things ended up traumatizing people. But here's what you have to do. You have to taste everything. Because you're going to find out that you end up loving things that you wouldn't taste. And I never had, well, cheesecake for a long time. I thought I didn't like cheesecake. And I would think I was like 22 when I realized, oh, my gosh, I've missed all those years of uh, tasting cheesecake. So just keep tasting stuff and say, Mom, if, as long as I taste it, is that okay? And I'm pretty sure she'll go along with it. It also shows respect for the person who prepared the food. You know, they did all the work. And the least you can do is taste it and give it a shot. Okay. Thanks, thanks, girls. Thanks for Thank your you. questions. Are you sure? Yes, please. <laughs> I'm Budge. I'm Budge Shane. I'm Kirstein's uncle. Oh, my right. gosh. We're all here in force tonight. Okay, wait a second. Are you from Denmark? No, my wife is from Denmark. Your my wife is, is Kirstein's brother, uh, Kirstein's father's sister. Okay. At any rate, Kirstein lived with us for a year or two sometime about 20, gosh, a long time ago. At any rate, a couple of observations. First of all, if you're going to have a family dinner and make it special, as we had always done, two candles on every table. Always. That just sets the tone. That's right. it. You don't have to have flowers, but the candles, that's it. You've got to come sit down and like it. Uh, I think that's a fantastic tip. The, the, the other thing is the reason that people are snacking is because they're eating all those sugar drinks, and the sugar is putting your insulin on a roll, and you're always hungry. You got to stub, put something in your face. Right. We did something perhaps isn't isn't done anymore, but everybody had to eat what was on the table, or they didn't get anything else. And there we we had it with our kids, and I don't think this was before Kirstein's time with us, but uh, we had we were going to have them try liver, and you were going to eat liver once a month, prepared exquisitely, and after a year, if you didn't like it, you didn't even have to try it. They won't eat it today at all. I love liver. Okay, so a few things didn't work, but, but a lot of things yeah, did yeah. work. Nothing yeah. works perfectly. Yeah, but exactly. you don't. But, but you don't. There has to be something there we know that you'll eat. Right. Because there's nothing else going to be there. Right. Thank you so much. Can, Kirsten, will you come to the microphone for one second? Because we'd like to hear just a couple of suggestions from you for overwhelmed families who are out there 
um, trying to get dinner together. Like, what? Give us a little advice. Give us some of your wise advice. I think that the most important ingredient you could put in your food is a smile. We are so busy today, and sometimes we only have time to open a can and pour in some hopefully organic tomato soup. But if it's served with smile and love, your kids are going to remember it forever because that's what you remember. When you look back at your childhood, you remember your mom and your dad smiling at you. That's the most nourishing of all. That's well, at my house, not so much. But <laughs> in a perfect world, yes. <laughs> um, tell, just tell us just very quickly where you grew up and how you grew up and where you I, learned to cook. I grew up on, on the same farm that my aunt here grew up in Denmark. In, in, Speaking of the mic directly, thanks. It was on a fruit farm in Denmark. We grew up um, working really hard, picking apples, um, cooking for farmhands, and I would say that the most cherished and looked forward moment of the day was having dinner, because we got to sit down. That was the, we were no longer working, we were sitting down. But it was also where we, um, we got to show love. It's the, one, it's the one moment where we weren't working hard, and we got to look at each other, and look each other in the eye, and, and yeah, it was a, it was a love moment. And you learned how to cook by, from your mom? From my grandmother, from my mother, from my aunts, from all the women in my family. And I'm incredibly fortunate to have done that. And I hope that every parent in this room will do the same for their child. It might only be once a month or once a week, but show them something that your, your mother, your father, your grandparent showed them. Because that's, it's passing down recipe, it's passing down lore, it's, and it's the only way these recipes are going to be passed on. Right. Because otherwise they're going to disappear. And they were always healthy. You know, you look at children's food, kids' food today, what is it? What is it we're giving to kids? And you look at the ingredients on these things. These are the, these are the people we love most in the whole world. And we're giving them food that, you know, our pet food's probably better if you look at the ingredients. I mean, those are at least our wholesome ingredients. These, these are ingredients we don't even know what they are. We don't know what they are. What are some of your favorite recipes in the book? Well, of course, it's, it's Danish meatballs, just because these were, I, I grew up, my, my aunt grew up eating these, any Dane grew up eating meatballs, and then we had them for lunch next week. Okay, so bar. listen, these Danish meatballs are fantastic, okay? They're called frikadella. Frikadella, yeah. Yeah, well, she says it right. But, yeah. and, they're, and they're not Swedish. Swedish meatballs are round, frikadella are oblong, and they are just superior. And we actually have a little video up on our website showing people how to do it, but the recipe is very easy, and just it, do me a favor, if you make the Danish meatballs, double the recipe, because you will not be able to stop eating them. And your kids will eat them, and they're fantastic the next day, cold. How do you eat them cold the next day? Like, well, it's did, traditional, no, no, right? No, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. What we, we would do was, it, it would be a snowy day outside, and you'd go in, and you'd take this meatball, and you put it in the oven so it warmed up, and then you'd take a piece of rye bread. Rye bread is really important. You have to stop eating the white bread. This is rye bread, and you'd put a little bit of butter on it. Butter's good. I've got to say, butter's good because it's so tasty. And then you'd put the warm meatball on top of it, and the butter would melt. And then you'd put a little bit of jam on top or some cucumbers. And it was just heaven in a mouthful. And it still is. And you can make it yourself. Yay. Thank you. We've got a few minutes left. Let's get these last questions in. Um... Jack Lalonde does not eat animals. 
Jack a lot of people do. Jack Lalanne, you know, the, the bodybuilder? Oh, Jack Lalanne. Yes, Jack Lalanne, anyway. Um, and the French did a marvelous study years ago. They found that their economic productivity was greater because the breakfast is either chocolate or uh, coffee or tea, drunk from a bowl, specially made for that. Wow. And maybe some toast, a little butter. And then at lunch, that was their main meal. From 12 to 2, France closes down as a country. And having traveled there for three months, I know. <laughs> and then their tea would be around 4.30 or 5 in the evening, supper between 7 and 9. Right. And they are very fit, very healthy. I think it's interesting we talk about all these other countries, you know, yeah. Italy and France, and, we're, and one of the things that we love about them are the food traditions. So what are, what are our, what's America's food traditions? And, and well, hamburgers and french fries. I know. We've got to do better than that. We have to. <laughs> we, we can do better than that. We can. Yes, sir. Hi there. Um, I lived in China for 12 years, and uh, you don't see a lot of obesity there, although that's changing recently. And I think a lot of it has to do, in my opinion, not only diet but the chopsticks, because... You can't fit as much on the chopsticks with each bite. A fork can hold a lot more. And so I would just like to propose chopsticks at the table for, you know, tackling obesity. I think it's a fantastic idea. It's a fantastic idea. And um, think of how fun dinners are going to be at his house. Exactly. During shopping. I probably can't figure out how to work them, so it's hard to... Uh, yeah, the, uh, obesity is growing in China because they're eating uh, potato chips and, and Western diet. Yeah, that's what we're, we're sending over there. Now, in listening to your talk, if I didn't know that you were from Hollywood and a producer, I might think that some of the things that you're talking about would be someone from the middle of the country, perhaps on the religious right or right, uh, talking about family values. Have you encountered any people who are very different than you politically in this book journey uh, and found that you might have some things in common around food and family where you don't agree well, on politics? You know, that's a very, very interesting question. And I, yes, I have, just recently. Um, I, was on, I was a guest on The View last week. And they have, you know, The View has a, all those great women with very mm. um, different opinions. And Elizabeth is somebody who I don't agree politically with most often. And she was incredibly excited about this book. And after the, the segment, we had all the food out there, and they, you know, it was so funny, too, because Whoopi Goldberg, they said, you know, she's not going to eat anything, and she's, she, doesn't, she won't eat a vegetable, and she's, <laughs> she's not going to eat anything. From, literally, go watch the segment. From the second the segment started, she could not stop eating. I mean, she didn't ask me one question. She was eating the entire time. So I took that as a huge compliment. But Elizabeth was really excited about all this, and as soon as the segment was over and we walked off, we um, stood in a corner and talked for 20 minutes about food and, and all the issues relating to food. So, yes, that's, that's an answer. This is not a political issue. This is, you know, this is about our families. This is about our health. And then it's about our future, too. And it can reach people that don't care about polar bears, but they care about the, the food right. on their plate. It's, right. I think it's incredibly powerful. Well, I don't think family uh, dinner at our house is going to be, be the same. We're certainly going to pick up your book. Thank you very much for your Thank book. Thank you. Thank you for your time Thank here. you so much, everybody. Thank um, you. Thank you, Greg. Our thanks to Lori David for her comments today here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming.